trust me when I say this. I have not come across another person who is so well-read and knowledgeable across domains, be it science, technology, business or art. So we are lucky to have with us Ayushi Mishra. She is a person who thrives at the intersection of technology, business and people in its most true sense. She is an entrepreneur and made it to Forbes 30 under 30 Asia list recently for her startup Drona Maps. It's a platform to power sustainable development with drone-based 3D maps and geospatial insights. As a graduate student at John Hopkins, she co-founded Marigold Health, which is funded by NIH, a mobile platform leveraging natural language processing for chart-based peer support, thereby scaling the capacity of care teams. Ayushi is passionate about the use of emerging technology for the betterment of human condition. We can say, undoubtedly, she is an experienced and passionate product creator with deep empathy for consumer and customer needs, balanced with a strong eye for emerging trends. So, without further ado, let's hear what Ayushi has in store for us. And I can promise you, by the end of the episode, you will be left with so diverse and rich insights like you're gonna love it in short let's get started scale 3D mapping with drones and then we use AI and deep learning to extract analytics from it. Uh, this is largely for um, applications like smart cities and smart villages. Um, I'm a biomedical uh, engineer by uh, education and I did my master's at Johns Hopkins uh, engineering management with my concentration in biomaterials. Um, my first startup was actually within grad school. It's a, it's a peer support and therapy platform uh, called Marigold Health now and is funded by National Institutes of Health. I moved back to India 2017 and like have st- since been working on this company. Do you think there are so many less women in the field of technology when we see ourselves, when we see around ourselves? Um, I think... Uh, uh, I think, Simran, the thing is that technically speaking, you do have a lot of women representation in technology, at least at the entry level. Uh, mm-hmm. The question to ask then becomes like, where are these women going after the middle management? True. Uh, because like, obviously, like, you know, when you notice any of the engineering colleges in India, apart from the IITs and the NITs, which do have a skewed admission ratio and have like in the past uh, considered like... Um, and in some cases also approved uh, reservations for women. Um, but now the question becomes, um, if 
or North Lake, you know, if even if you had a class of 50% women in education, does that translate to women actually being present in the workforce? And more often than not, I think after um, middle management, that doesn't translate because the leadership atmosphere often is not very conducive to um, that plus having a family plus the biological clock. But I also think it's very hard for women to find mentors. I agree with you. I, I, I agree with you. Like, even when we are studying in educational institutions, we don't even, even I don't feel like this, you know, there's some disparity between my male fellow or me. I, I believe we both have equal opportunities and even competency. But yes, when we go ahead, it's seen that how women drop out earlier of leadership roles because of family pressures and how also workplace discrimination or women not being enough, enough opportunities and that. Um, I think it's actually a very tricky question, Simran, uh, and sorry if I'm taking more time, yeah, but uh, um, the thing is, technically speaking, I have the same opportunities as any as, as any friend of mine who has the same education, and to be really honest, I am a product of privilege, right, like, uh, at the end of the day, my family at some point decided to, ha- like, you know, invest so much in a girl's education, uh, to still, like, you know, let her mm-hmm. take risks, so all of those things factor in, but, um, and having said that, like, I think, even when I think that I have the same opportunities as uh, as any of the guys um, I work with, uh, the place that I do feel it's it's chronically different is actually the support system or like you know role models that you can work with. Mm-hmm. Um, so currently, any of the industry leaders or women leaders that you have, often it is very difficult to imagine yourself like thirty years from now being that person because um, thirty years ago, like you know, somebody who entered like from college to the the workforce and what they've had to adjust with in order to lead the workforce today is not going to be the same compromises that would like hold true for 30 years from now and the traditional model of male uh, leadership uh, tends to impact a lot of these things so I think like uh, that has a lot of bearing on uh, like you know why women don't find the right mentors why don't uh, uh, why aren't they able to um uh, like you know uh, rise up within the organization because I, I think it's a lot about like a tribal idea of uh, what like you know leadership looks like I agree because your immediate community does you know create a lot of impact on how we perceive things and which hasn't been really favorable when it comes to women and also I read this book Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg and she also talks about how women often drop out more much more earlier even before they are asked to so if they are asked to take up a leadership role they would genuinely consider oh if uh, like I also have to think about my family how will I take care of my child something that men won't often think about that they won't drop out because they think they have to take care about some family commitment so if we so that's how if we create like equal commitment for both the partners, it's actually possible for women to actually step up in those cases. So definitely, definitely. And I think there is another angle to it, right? I think the point of family, uh, or like at least having your own family and having your own children actually comes into the picture when you're talking about having a partner. 
but uh, even before that like i think there are researchers which would say that like if women have started a crowdfunding campaign and let's say uh, let's say they're trying to raise 10k if they reach about 9k a man would consider this completely successful while women won't uh, women are like in general less risk taking than men um and also i mean it has a lot to do with like the models you follow uh for leadership and what you've been reared for like i think a lot about this is nurture at the end of the day and even if we so like for instance entrepreneurship like i'm not tech in general but please entrepreneurship or leadership entails mm-hmm. putting yourself out there and i think a lot of women um including me have the imposter syndrome where they're constantly second guessing uh, themselves and to the point like you know even universities like caltech actually have support groups for women like uh, with imposter syndrome like they've specifically addressed this as a problem uh, in technology or like in general so i mean that's something that uh, does happen and makes you question uh, constantly so i think one of the things that i would re- definitely look at some of my male counterparts with like a lot of envy about is the fact you know the confidence with which they would start about without having much like often times without even if the argument they're making is the same like which is how the man's planning comes from so on so forth right yes angry i recognize this phenomenon of self doubt that um, how women are more likely to suffer from imposter syndrome and more likely to self doubt uh, when i read again in that lean in book then i started to recognize okay probably there's nothing really wrong with me it's just like underestimating oneself because of cultural product we are it has been like this phenomenon in women for a long time and not just like in india or something but people also abroad experiencing it not because of how we are but how we experience society it's not, it's not a local geography phenomenon it happens everywhere i think there was uh, there was a ted talk somewhere which talked about tony morrison in fact actually even albert einstein like a lot of people who uh, who know a lot tend to doubt their uh, achievements in general and i think that that's something that is common to uh, high achievers a lot <laughs> but at the same time it is more predominant at least um, in women from what i understand but i have worked with a fair amount of men who have the same self doubt like process so wouldn't uh, wouldn't be right to completely exclude them from the from the group itself okay so now we move on to next question um how do you think we can create more inclusive policies which can actually uh, we can say lower the gender barriers that exist for people in workplace according to you um i think if i were to structure um, the policies then uh, i think one thing would definitely be more representation across like um, like even if it's mandatory representation across the entire um legal structure administrative structure of a company uh, and also like making sure that um you um also i think mobility play, plays a huge role right so if you have uh, and that is across like schooling from till the time that you're working in a job role uh, how you are traveling or when are you reaching home tends to become a huge differentiator 
when and how you can hang out with your uh, colleagues it becomes a huge differentiator so as a policy uh, companies should actually make sure that if they're having any mixers they're having it within the work hours it is friendly for women um ensuring that they you know whatever way they're reaching back home whether it's a bus service they're scheduling whether it's a car um and it's safe and i've i've had friends in consulting i've had friends in uh like different companies that they work for where there have been some cases like uh, even with the employees and this is like the completely privileged lot so um, yeah i think mobility is the second factor you would really want to focus on like uh, metro safety trains uh, on the road everything yeah so i agree with this because a lot of time even the mentorship sessions be like usually so there was also this company i'm forgetting the name which also implemented this since they knew that women cannot always go out on like dinner with any men usually you know senior partners in the firm so they made this only lunch policy where you only socialize if you want to go out with a mentor you go out on lunches instead of this conventional policy of you going out on dinners with your mentors so it meant now more women can also go out given its daytime and yeah it actually it, did change certain dynamics you're right so i mean uh, and uh, it agrees with what i was trying to say as well that uh, uh, you know the traditional criticism that um, uh, you know the drink after work or uh, like particularly at wall street or places like that it's just something that women can't pull off because they work home early and uh, if you're looking at it in an indian context you're actually thinking that women can't really stay out so late like having a uh, dinner or uh, like with co- uh, colleagues just because like you know there is a safety factor to be taken into uh, into account like for instance i'll give an example my sister studying to be a lawyer now if she's like interning at a legal firm and like you know the partner throws a dinner and it's late at night i do know that my mom is constantly worried that this is delhi and it's not safe and uh, mm-hmm. like you know it's not it, those would not be factors that like any of my male colleagues or like had there been a guy would be dealing with so i think like all policies would have to account for this disparity uh, no matter what and at least like in the uh, the next few years making sh- seeing that the history like you know place like delhi has or like india has had to, particularly for violence towards women okay um so now i would like to move to few of the questions which are much more personal to you so beginning okay. that you have been in entrepreneurship um so there is this always this idea like a person is a startup kid if they do something unconventional in their childhood or start with something uh, in their childhood yeah it's just like or is like sort of a backbencher and this out of the box right so yeah did you fit in that sort of startup kid thing or anything from your childhood that you believed um resonates with oh you had that entrepreneurial quality you discovered any instance of childhood probably if you can recall <laughs> so here's the thing like i think all of those narratives that you hear now right it's actually contrary to the truth so there, uh, there is a couple of researches i think one from the duke university which states that majority of startup founders are actually phd's mid 40s uh, like successful startups so like the current startup myth that you find among people are yeah. entirely fueled by b2b startups uh, like you know your mark zuckerbergs your uh, Apple, Steve Jobs, like, uh, and even for that matter, Bill Gates, where you're talking about this genius child prodigy from college, and then suddenly, like, you know, start this company out of a garage. 
So that's the narrative. Um, and I don't think it's inaccurate. It's just, um, it's I think very unique to them. And it's also a narrative that is, uh, that is discovered post facto. Like once everything has happened. So I do have a co-founder uh, in my last startup who did drop out of college versus I finished my entire master's then like uh, actually even like in this startup like my co-founder is still working towards his degree uh, while like I actually did finish my master's I was a straight A student most of my life um, a fairly straight and narrow um, I think the only indicators uh, that I would say that I mm-hmm. had I don't think I had like indicators like, you know, I was entrepreneurial and had a small business of my own kind of mindset, uh, but more on the lines of always on uh, structure has never worked for me. Like existing, um, existing hierarchies, existing structure and like gaining favor within an existing structure has never worked for me. So like a dynamic of disruption is perfect for like my psychology uh, the other side of it is, if I were to actually think of it from a skill set st- uh, standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, I think what happened in school, like when I did start my first startup, was this realization that if I became like you know I had a career in business alone, that meant I would like completely give up on the tech side of things, or I would completely give up on the creative side of things. Mm-hmm. And if I were to become like a creative person full time, like let's say I took up photography or let's say I took up writing, then that basically meant that you know the other two like very pragmatic sides of me are lost, and I felt that um, I needed to have more experience of the world before I was even ready to do that. Um, the third aspect of it is if I became an engineer and that essentially like an engineer as a profession and that essentially meant that I would lose out on the other two aspects of like you know how I think so I realized that my brain is fairly like you know works in three dimensions and for it to be at its best like I thrive in the gray areas and the silos and entrepreneurship is perfect for it because you can pour literally everything you uh, like everything you think and can do into this one thing and can nurture it so i think that's how i found my group oh that's amazing like, it's quite an introspection also i see <laughs> thinking before career no, <laughs> i genuinely yeah, right? like why this why oh. i mean this, the whole thing is this is not easy it has never been and uh, of course there are stories of like you know sleeping under the table like i've slept in a sleeping bag for like eight months but in hindsight when you think about it this is always like you know the the myth of the starving entrepreneur the same glamour as the myth of the starving artist like in many ways like you know the when you're talking about in, in the public narrative mm-hmm. and if that is the case you start wondering like to what extent do actual entrepreneurs who are doing um conform to this myth right and obviously like where do you fall within the spectrum and that's why the introspection oh. But yeah, I do think that straight A students um, are more likely to persevere with stuff. Like, I mean, I I was just drawing this link because it does show something. But yeah, I like your way, you know, finding your way around system. Uh, straight A essentially implies that you always had curiosity, you have intellectual rigor, right? Now whether or not you choose to apply to a field that is as um, as risky as entrepreneurship is a secondary question. So I think there are two things you need. Like 
often straight A students actually make like pretty bad entrepreneurs unless they decide to work it. Um, and the, the reason behind that is, I think this is Jopal Sarth's quote, which is said, who was like, um, it's the good children, madam, who become the most terrible revolutionaries because they never steal a cookie, they never tell a lie, and like at the end of the day, they make the nation pay for it. So you need, like, you know, the, the scripted students who have the intellect for it, but also the ability to go beyond the structure uh, to, and, like, you know, see it from a different point of view. Yeah, I like it now. Um, <laughs> so my next question is, uh, like, you going abroad for education, do you think it helped in, in any way honing your perspective more or helping, uh, yeah, helping you to understand entrepreneurship better in any way? this exposure was actually significant in shaping who you are today. Yeah. I think someone the honest answer to that is yes and very mentally so. Um, Primarily because, uh, see, I'm not, um, so uh, where I did my undergrad from is GSLPS in India. Uh, It's a great public college, which is one of the few places where you have biomedical engineering in India. And mm-hmm. it was in my home. So that was great. Um, but having said that, it wasn't suitable. And it wasn't, ex- uh, like, it didn't actually give me the exposure. And, like, those four years, I spent a lot of time feeling um, frustrated. Like, uh, yeah, restricted and frustrated. And um, I think, like, you know, that left a few choices. Like, either... Um, joining a job immediately after like in the IT sector or like studying abroad and I do feel that I um, it was my mom who actually like forced me to take the study abroad option um, and I think Hopkins particularly was like transformative for me as a person um, it opened my mind to the fact that you know you can be strange you can have different skill sets uh, and still be valuable in its own way. And I think some one of the struggles I had, like uh, particularly with my undergrad, was just uh, I was it was very hard for me to accept the fact that you know I wasn't exactly conforming to the idea of the ideal student there. Oh. Okay. Um, my next question is: uh, So I read about like yeah, you are in a lot of different things as well, not just like hardcore tech or hardcore business also art some way so as a product yeah as being somebody who has done the role of product manager and chief operations officer how do you what do you think is the role of empathy uh in building a product or just like running and operating a company and how do you think what are the ways in which we can inculcate um this virtue of empathy in people to just like think from that perspective i think i, I, I think it's sense. massive and honestly i don't know if it's biased because i operate with it a lot uh but as you pointed out like um i do have fairly like strong artistic side that um personally i i feel like i almost uh need to keep alive in order to be sane um, but having said that, like, you know, in terms of leadership and in terms of product development, I feel like you can't really develop a product or sell a product or run a company without understanding what your client wants, what your uh, team wants out of this entire thing. 
and to be able to think from their shoes like there usually two kinds of leaders one would uh, who would you know uh, who have a very strong vision and would ensure either out of like uh, out of instilling fear or like through incentives or make sure that like you know you follow them for one reason or the other like usually what has worked for me is uh, is is actually getting like you know the team convinced or the client convinced of why i think uh, this uh, like abc is the right thing to do uh, simply on the basis of like getting them to empathize with how i'm thinking and like getting them to uh, getting them to think alongside me so uh, and also i mean like at the same time putting myself in their position and then like you know trying to assess the playing field so i do think like in terms of um, in terms of strategy or operation like uh, my team feels like a lot less pressure because i would be a lot more empathetic and if they are actually going up and beyond for something that i have asked mm-hmm. uh, it's often out of kindness and like because they want to and not because like you know i'm uh, i'm basically threatening to fire them so uh, yeah i think like that uh, that plays a huge role and has worked for me and at least in product development it's uh, it's a lot easier to design a product if you actually understand and empathize with the user okay um so for an aspiring entrepreneur like college going students uh, what would you suggest to gain experience with like with by working with few startups first or or just like if you have an idea if you have a vision just like jump with your both feet directly into the space <laughs> uh, I, i don't know i think i don't think there is one answer so i have been at this spot where uh, mm-hmm. this is actually a very interesting anecdote and a case like i completely like, very freshly remembered i already had one startup and this lady who worked in consulting um actually uh, probably didn't know the the fact that i already had one startup so she was uh, she was actually giving advice and she goes like you know you should have, uh, you should work for another startup under entrepreneurs you respect and then learn the trade um and um, the general idea is that you can only learn business through either like working with businessmen working with other entrepreneurs or working in consulting or in companies and i think it is true to the extent that you would inherit the structures you would inherit like you know the ways of doing things which uh, which is something that you don't know as a fresh uh, college graduate mm-hmm. and but i also think that there are particular fields so i think it's also dependent on the field that you're thinking about going so for instance fintech like would be a field where you need significant amount of domain expertise significant amount of network and i wouldn't recommend like um, a fresh graduate to suddenly be like i'm going to make the next like a fintech unicorn um but that's also because of the biases within that network. uh versus like b2c startups are overwhelmingly like uh, dominated by students because they are risky ventures uh you need somebody to work on the ground and uh, often like for a student with no experience it's easier to start like easier to start is that you don't need a lot of capital you need yeah. to bring people on board and that's the guy and have people rally behind you um and i think this whole aspect of it becomes um like if you're starting something like a b2b startup so i'll tell you an anecdote where uh, we were at an um, at a startup event and there mm-hmm. were uh, this investor basically asked me hey, you know how is it that there are three drone companies we have met till today and all of them have very uh, young co- like you know founders and uh, the answer was fairly simple um 
because in drones like there is like you know the technology is so new um you didn't have domain expertise so it's it's an open field for getting like new founders in and have innovation within it so in short like in a nutshell the answer to your question would become like what idea did you have um do you think you can pull it off and i would always recommend like do a small test uh deploy it somewhere like see what the reaction is and if that seems like um like always prototype your business as well not just your product so run a small test with a small pilot of people see if they're interested and then move on from there nice i i i got your point of case to case basis so to modify my next question a little then if so there's this idea also which i think mark zuckerberg also once said like make and break things fast like keep on experimenting versus there another idea that you need to stay patient with some ideas or some things for them to make them work so um i won't say what do you believe in but i would say if you are doing a particular thing how would you decide in a position like do i just like uh just constantly experiment and like just move on and pick up another thing or do i stay with something or with this idea or anything you are working on so how do you uh decide which part to choose out of the two given it's on case to case basis but certain metrics you probably have uh while deciding oh, okay so here's the thing i think you know design thinking or prototyping uh just like you know working make fast and fail fast kind mm-hmm. of like uh, yeah that kind of mentality comes very uh, easily to artists right so uh, like any any time somebody asks like you know how this works and i would generally like point out if you were making michelangelo's david you wouldn't start with a full size one Like you would always start small, make a smaller version, get it perfected. Like make multiple versions of it. Once you've made multiple prototypes, now you think it can scale. Then you would make like the final cast. And uh, I think, uh, and that applies to business as well. Which means that there is a phase of rapid prototyping. Uh, but I also think there is a phase of ideation before rapid prototyping. so um like let's say if i was faced with a problem um, i do think i do like to seep into it and like sort of absorb it and uh, like take my own time to come up with a solution but like i would also at the same time run through multiple scenarios and multiple versions of it as i'm trying to narrow down the possibilities so like essentially start from like a looking at you know like all the possibilities that are all, uh, out there and then like start narrowing down from that point onwards then prototype the ones that you think are viable uh, and do it fast so you at least have an idea of whether or not it works but i think like you know the one part where my process would be slightly different uh, than like a lot of designers i've seen for instance mm-hmm. um would be that like you know they often actually like uh, put the prototype on uh, Like they would deploy the prototype and then see that uh, it's it's not quite working. Like in my case, like uh, I would deploy the prototype only when I'm convinced about it in my head. So I would imagine it first, like have versions of it. Then I would start making bits and pieces of it. Like with bits and pieces, I would realize that whether or not it's working as a long, uh, like larger picture, and then abandon it if like you know the bits and pieces don't work. Um, if that answers your question. Yeah, I I got it. So it really depends on the phase one, isn't? Will one you have to 
explore like stay patient with stuff and explore them but there's also that phase where you have to um probably try and test quickly and extensively to i mean to get to whatever you're working and like to get the best results i think so it depends yeah. on the phase you are in for robustness you would need both like often like your brilliance actually like can possibly come out of a very short time frame and a lot of prototyping see i think when you say like you know fail fast the uh, the general idea that you're trying to warn people against is the idea that don't sit on an idea forever or just don't think about it forever and not do it because if you don't do it nobody else will right and that's what you're trying to instill in people by saying that just take the risk deploy like a smaller version yeah even if you can take a small risk and once you've done that uh, it's after this point like that's a step further because now it's not just a conversation now it's not just something that you've imagined in your in your head now it's a real thing that may or may not be the best or may or may not solve the situation the best but it's a real thing that can be improved upon Oh, I I got it. I I do agree. Like most of this idea about startup is from like TV series or some something really fancy and like you know from above the surface, which I got most of it. Like how it looks from outside and not how it looks from inside. <laughs> This conversation genuinely helped. Uh, it, sorry, I didn't get you. I was saying nothing really does like you know look the same way from outside. Oh yes, <laughs> yes I agree. But there were like a lot of myths people hold, and even I hold. But I think they are more like TV series which influence these perceptions as well. Um, Definitely, you know the TV series are modeled after uh, what the audience already thinks is a startup. what the audience would find is an appealing idea or a format for a startup like for instance shark tank it's yeah. more geared towards like um product startups or it's more geared towards like what a consumer would understand immediately then let's say deep tech startups right mm-hmm. or like if you're pitching or creating a deep tech startup that's a completely different ball game than making a b2c startup like zomato so all those different um a dynamics come into play and they all have to be approached differently but all of but what's consistent in all of this is the fact that yes after the ideation uh, there is a lot of blood sweat toil and tears that comes into making this a real thing and for that you do have to like you know it take in small phases and make sure that you make this a real thing even if it's not perfect yes um okay so i i have this just geo gen next is actually a sort of incubator for startups or like assist startups to help them launch right yeah it's it's uh, it's by reliance and uh, it's for uh, reliance industries to support innovation within their ecosystem so you help facilitate them start these startups in actually getting on ground and like taking off in terms of execution or Or further from whichever stage they are at. Oh uh, yes. So uh, generally, they uh, I think they have changed their strategy now, and I think like you could actually, if you're interested, reach out to them for more information. But from what I understand, like mm-hmm. Gen Next usually prefers um, startups with strategic interests that. Um, that can actually uh, supplement like the work that's already or complement the work that's already happening within reliance industries uh, and the idea 
idea is um, to kind of like you know embed innovation within you and give like a new talent new chances uh, having said all that like um, i think it's a uh, it's a very interesting and unique format for india because uh, reliance is such a wide range of offerings that they end up having like a very huge range of cohorts and uh, like at least like our cohort was very different like versus like the cohorts that have come in so mm-hmm. our cohort like for instance actually included logistics it included iot's it, it included pr uh, drones like so on and so forth so, like there is a huge variety and uh, the idea is to obviously like embed within the, the reliance ecosystem and see like where we can innovate oh nice um so having done like two startups what do you think is the most important thing that is that determine yeah that actually determines the success of any startup like what do you think is one major component i mean yeah i know there are a lot of factors which you can name it but what do you personally add more weightage to it boils down to the ability to stick it out like uh, because there would be a lot of ups and downs there it, it's going to be like you know um intellect fails at it like um curiosity does creativity does all of those things are part of the uh, part of uh, the entire like you know recipe mm-hmm. but i think determination makes the larger part of it like you know just the ability to go in every day and like still be like okay i'm still working on this and trying to figure it out um and also like also needs grit to stick it out and like pivot if it needs to but for for that also you have to show up every day and not give up oh i agree to this sometimes i tried to start up i think i lost i uh, but yeah i lost the idea in my like i lost the interest in my own idea pretty quickly and it was like one needs to stick to an idea and make it stick uh, with the idea like for longer or didn't implement mm-hmm. it it's also like 
I would say consistently with both of my startups, like I've always had a team that is, like you know, you need people who can help you cruise through the imposter syndrome. You need people who can help you cruise through the lows, like for you to even enjoy the highs. So I think, uh, yeah, I think that's like another very crucial point. Okay. Um, so have you worked in Silicon Valley or like um, got in touch with people who have worked in Silicon Valley? I mean, it sounds very fancy again, Silicon Valley working. The way it portrays in the shows, there's this intense work culture. US startup system, if that's what you are asking me. Yeah, I uh, think that sounds better. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, so uh, with Silicon Valley, especially like, you know, so I've never lived in the valley itself. My first startup is now based in Boston, started out of Baltimore, which is East Coast. Uh, we had been incubated in uh, Texas, uh, like with the Texas Medical Center, because it's a healthcare startup. Mm-hmm. Uh, so having said that, like, uh, so uh, I haven't ever lived in Silicon Valley long enough to essentially say that I'm like, you know, West Coast person. Uh, but like, I think I'm familiar enough to say that you're right. Like there is openness for innovation. Like every second person you meet would be, uh, a founder of some sort and uh, there is investors everywhere but um, but I think like there is a lot of innovation that is happening outside of Silicon Valley now um, in places like you know even Israel Israel is amazing India has been doing great work China so uh, now startups because Silicon Valley started getting like a, a very saturated so even within the US you have multiple uh, ecosystems the parallel ecosystems which have started cropping up so Boston's one of them um, like North Carolina around uh, Duke University for healthcare and pharma startups and um, like DC area sort of uh, New York a little bit and uh, in fact even Texas is a very up and coming like uh, a startup hub because they do have Houston and uh, like Austin there and um, yeah and there's Atlanta which I've heard recently is actually fairing really well on ARVR startup. So usually when we you know again picture this idea of this startup culture like from again what I got from Silicon Valley show also there's a lot of intense work culture where there's a lot of brainstorming session happened or just like people meeting and getting together and doing stuff like everybody's just like working at the best speed and coding do you think in the situation of COVID-19 it is actually possible for startups to um, do this remote working and still given when they are involved in intense discussion and task and they can still continue like is working with with silicon valley startups or any startups possible uh, through remote work well uh, so like for instance as as corona uh, pandemic hit india like we were in punjab at that point of time so we uh, we've actually launched a solution specifically for corona which is for mm-hmm. Which is an administrative dashboard for uh, four states in India, like in Punjab, Rajasthan, uh, with Haryana and Chhattisgarh, we still have like public dashboards out. And for administrative dashboards, you're talking about the entire predictive analytics, like how the spatial spread of the disease would be, um, like you know, just tracking and maintaining you know, the database of uh, quarantine patients, like patients and uh, patients who are in like people who are quarantined to uh, ensure that there is no spread. So that's the entire solution 
Now, the interesting part is like we are talking to other states like um, and a range of them. And in all these cases, the entirety of the work is happening re- remotely. And uh, see, one thing we need is a great internet connection. <laughs> but beyond that, like most of the work can be deployed like remotely. I think we do lose out on some brainstorming elements, but the good thing is that you could still get on the phone and like get on a uh, like on a video conference session and try to brainstorm out of it. But uh, I would agree that the casual or the human interaction elements of it have reduced. But as far as executing a job is concerned, uh, like yeah, we're still doing it fairly efficiently. Do you think it uh, affects the work culture also? Because when you are within a system or with people you're still feeling that there are certain work policies being employed and way people are behaving or interacting now probably that work culture um which is specific to organization might not be felt to an extent when you're working remotely so yeah like there are some people who love that kind of structure and want to have that structure like of people's mm-hmm. Like having a pantry, or like you know, a, a certain way of uh, even conducting and like establishing meetings. A lot of people who end up working for startups actually are not from the way, right? And most of the tech community, uh, like you, uh, your people who are coding, are not a big fan of this. So when they're not a big fan of this, to like a large part of like them are actually like you know rather happy that they have to work only from their own execute their job and not particularly be concerned about the tie they're wearing um at the same time there is a there is a certain amount of loss in like you know uh casual interactions with the team and i do feel that it, it obviously needs like uh team sessions and hanging out like at least in my team the thing is we've known each other for a while now so it's not like we need to sort of suddenly build like a rapport mm-hmm. um, like i do agree that that is a part that does get missed out on okay um so my one last question related to startups is which are subjective is there is a lot of confusion about you know whether something qualifies as a startup or something qualifies as a small business uh, for example if tomorrow i start giving uh selling something if tomorrow i set up a e-commerce store or it is would it be considered say a startup or people think it's just like uh, another small business coming up and not exactly a startup because it does not have like a unique idea or an innovation so there's this misconception or just there's this confusion that goes about so yeah what i'm going to use like a distinction between a small business and a startup is it to do with the idea or is it to do with the size or years of operation no it actually has to do with neither of those things like not the idea not the size uh, it does have to do with is, um, like how it scales over a period of time or how you are estimating it's going to scale over a period of time right so um, like for instance if you start a small business that is a retail business mm-hmm. um, that's happening let's say out of a shop you own now the reason that's a small business is because um, let's say you are acquiring like uh, merchandise you are selling it and your expansion to another like shop is empty like you know it's dependent on you either like earning the money out of your revenue or getting investments mm-hmm. right but at the same time uh, 
the cap of what you can earn is already being dependent on the fact the margins that you can put on the goods and then again like the consumer uh, desire for it uh, versus let's say now so technically speaking having an e-commerce store uh, doesn't entirely mean it's a small business it depends on what kind of e-commerce store that is right so aggregators like mintra jabong are still startups like they're not small businesses uh versus like let's say if you are running a small sustainable brand um and you want to have like just a just a website where people can shop that doesn't uh, like the website itself doesn't make you a startup right so it it it's it's uh, it's a lot boiling down to how much growth can you have and how much scalability can you have Like let's say we were talking about the sustain a small uh, sus, uh, like you know sustainable mm-hmm. garment business. Mm-hmm. Now this garment business is actually like if they started as one shop, let's say in Hostas, and were not doing online sales, then their ability to expand is like severely hampered. Uh, mm-hmm. Now with the online channel, they uh, that means that they can actually target an entirely global audience, and that. changes the growth dynamics completely so then it stands a chance to be a brand and then those dynamics are different and so having a business of clothing versus having a brand is different versus having a startup with a brand is different um so when it comes to uh, let's say if i were talking about the dynamics in um, in my own business mm-hmm. um you are running a company that you have inherited um let's say uh, people who are assembling drones or creating drones like diy drones are running a small business because your production capacity is limited you need an infrastructure for the production capacity now there are startups that do hardware with the production capacity but then they might have limited production capacity now the reason they are startups is because they are trying to scale that to the point that they at least take a sizable chunk of the entire drone market of india Versus, like, if you were doing drone, uh, like, you know, DIY drones, you were not aiming for the entire size of the market. You were aiming to get a certain amount of percentage for your year, and like a certain amount of like X Y Z sum of money that you deemed to be, uh, like, in, good enough for your uh, effort that has been put in in the entire area. And then within these segments, of course, like, you have other factors that do come in. Uh, like at the end of it, like you have like major companies with like four hundred, five hundred employees, like working towards manufacturing drones. Now, the like the way we would figure in is like we uh, have very like the other identifying factor about like startups, like at least tech startups, is the need of fewer employees. Like so, companies like WhatsApp actually like were working for like seventeen employees only. So the leaner you are, and the more you can scale. uh with the same number of people is another very important metric and uh, then again like what target like you know what uh, portion of the market are you targeting and like how much market share that you can potentially get if you serve this market okay i mean that makes quite a lot thanks clear as well as yeah a good starting point to dive in as well i feel like on how to oh. see it and not just in very objective terms from which I was seeing it, so there was a lot of confusion I had always with this and with my friends also. So yeah, but it does clear out a lot of things. It's not as black and white as we thought. It's also about vision. Yeah, also, uh, I think like you know the reason that confusion arises is because uh, 
like fundamentally your dynamics of investment in a startup are different than your dynamics of investment in a small business and which is where the question arises from right like your question essentially becomes if uber never makes money for instance mm-hmm. um, like let's just take an example then is it a business because as a business you're supposed to make money mm-hmm. right yes, yes. so yeah that's that's what it begs the question as and i think like startups like tech startups in particular have a uh, redefined value as uh, human attention as well so like that's how you keep on funding a company like instagram well instagram is also making money from ads or whatsapp for instance like you're funding a company like whatsapp simply by the usage of it like uh, which boils us down to the question is there value in the service even if it wasn't making money Right. Uh, so yeah, I mean, those are all very good questions. Okay. So now we'll begin with the rapid fire questions. Um, yeah. So yeah, here we go. Uh, one book you would recommend for everyone to read? Ah, uh, fiction, non-fiction. You can recommend both since you asked the distinction. <laughs> Usually people tend to stick to one of fiction or non-fiction, but yeah. Okay, best fiction book you would recommend? um name of the rose umberto eco and best non fiction book argumentative indian amrita sen okay um again best movie recommendation from your side oh okay that's the tough one um midnight in paris okay also you can say the reason why if you would like to elaborate on oh. like the advice that okay, anything okay let's go back to the book then um umberto eco uh, name of the rose because uh, i think it's one uh, he was actually i think uh, quoted as one of the most intellectual people the last century has seen uh he's a semi uh, he was a semiotician uh, who uh, was who was an academic in italy and specialized in uh, reading meaning and symbols uh, but his work uh, the name of the rose actually became uh, i think the new york times described it as um, Umberto Eco has written a book, his first, and it has become an international sensation. Uh, it's uh, it's deep. Uh, it's beautifully written. Makes allusion like alludes to uh, um, Sherlock Holmes, to the entire like uh, history of um, um, of like um, mystery novels in general, but also like religion, the philosophical. Um, uh, Uh, the uh, the philosophical like you know uh, questions that arise when you're talking about determinism versus like free will or uh, que- uh, like it is essentially like an entire um, novel that is based on the idea of what postmodern literature is and how stories are about other stories and i really love the last like uh, two lines that that are there in the book uh, it's actually like i think a medieval latin phrase which goes like um, yesterday's rose arose in yours in its name we hold empty names so in latin it was like start rosa pristina nomina nomina tenemus and the reason uh, as i said the book's name is the name of the rose so uh, the way he's layering uh, the entire book is like you know uh, when we say yesterday's rose and yours in its name it could be any of the themes or the objects or the people that are explored uh, within the book it could be the library that they're talking about of course like you know there is this one girl who's a um, so uh, i think it's it's a beautifully written book and i uh, and all inspiring intellect and and about it so yeah 
Um, you actually remember so the yeah. Latin phrase. I like that. Like you actually said the Latin phrase. I mean, you remember yeah, that Latin I phrase. I was obsessed with it. Yeah, I was massively obsessed. Um, non-fiction. I think, uh, okay, non-fiction, uh, argumentative Indian. Um, I think this was the uh, this was a book I read in high school, and actually these are both books that I would consider like foundational to my entire th- thought process. Uh, the reason I would say argumentative Indian is important because it's important and more important in today's day and age, and for our youth to read, is to understand that there are dimensions to uh, like you know the world that we see around, to Hinduism that we see around. Like India actually had sects that believed in materialism entirely, and uh, there is nothing beyond this world. Uh, India actually had sex and atheism. So, uh, and obviously had a thriving argumentative culture that we don't refer to as much anymore. And uh, argumentative Indian actually, like, you know, goes through uh, the themes of gender, the themes of, like our relationship as a country, with foreign countries, and uh, does a brilliant job of parsing through our history and our, uh, our culture of um, discourse so i think it's an amazing book that everybody should read just to have like perspective of like the entire thought process that has been part of indian culture thank you they actually sound like very good recommendations i will definitely read the argumentative okay. um we were on movie yeah so you chose midnight in paris uh, yeah, Midnight in Paris, I think, like, for me, it's a nostalgia thing, uh, because uh, I uh, I grew up, like, with the art and literature from that time a lot. So, it's it's a movie about time dislocation, uh, and uh, it's a movie about, like, you know, a writer pining and feeling like he doesn't belong in a particular era. So, uh, and uh, he, uh, he basically, like, you know... Uh, thinks back and imagines himself going there and then there are like characterizations of Picasso and Matisse and Hemingway mm-hmm. um, so, uh, Dali so I think for me like it was like a huge massive like uh, um, and also like, like when I went to Paris I think that was one of some of the, my favorite parts of actually looking at Paris and seeing like you know how they've explored the entire city of Paris as well so uh, yeah Midnight in Paris I, I do think is a beautiful book if you are in a uh, movie if you are into like that era of painting and like just uh, literature as a whole but if that were not the case uh, like let me think like what other movies have been influential I would say Revolutionary Road um, it's a movie mm-hmm. directed by Sam Mendes, I believe, with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and um, but it's it's a movie about dreaming and having the conviction to have them come true. It's a very depressing movie, really, but beautifully uh, rendered, and the book is just as amazing. Okay, uh, one of the most useful advice you have got and you have stuck to, or like just remembered. Um, one of the most like useful advice like I've got. Um, my professor in grad school, like marketing professor, mm-hmm. actually told me. So I, uh, I was, I have been a quiet kid most of my life. Um, and uh, like, um, 
so he would look at me in class and he would know that i i would probably like you know i have ideas about it i'm just not speaking up so uh, he uh, he confronted me one day and he was like okay you know what like about 25% only 25% of what women say in a boardroom actually gets acted upon so if you say nothing nothing happens uh, and you are in rap school so this is a good place to experiment uh, i think he he ended the entire like talk with the idea that if you're a porcupine embrace the spikes and i think that that kind of makes perfect sense to me I like it. Um one leader you cl- you have closely followed. Uh sorry, can you say that again? One leader you have closely followed, like probably one of the I think I mean yeah, one of the business leaders you have closely followed or somebody you admire in business world. Oh, wow. okay. Huh. So I don't know, I have a very different approach to this. So um there is this quote by Frederick Nietzsche. Uh, which says do not dismiss your envies because they tell you what you really want and uh, so at one point of time i actually sat down with an intelligent trying to figure out like you know people who have like uh, captured my attention and like for how long and for like how long has it lasted down to like decades and how much time must i must have spent actually like you know uh, looking through their profiles trying to figure out what they do uh, and i've realized it's it's actually like a range of people so i uh, like i wouldn't say i can name one person in the business industry although um, there is one that comes to mind like the ceo of palantir it's a um it, it's it's a massive company that came out of uh that came out of silicon valley and it specializes in uh, um getting insights from large amounts of data like uh, structured mm-hmm. and unstructured data and uh, i think like what's amazing is uh, their ceo is actually a philosophy grad uh who looks at the company and who's uh, like you know very uh, upfront about the fact that they're not working towards making like you know optimizing ads so whatever they do whatever technology they make is uh, is actually used towards the betterment of humankind and i think that that is a sentiment that i can get um but apart from that like let's say if i were to not think of just pure like you know tech industry or like business world in general um or actually business world and there is ratan tata like uh, i i like i love his approach uh, towards like you know uh, how development or how industry should behave uh, and i think that there is a lot of um, there is a lot of like strong moral fiber that comes into it which is admirable um then there are like a lot of academics that i love like there is uh, there is an mit media labs professor uh, neri oxman i believe Like she's a bio architect uh, who's amazing at her work like sort of like a queen bee of laboratory so there's quite a few people actually fatima bhutto okay yeah there are quite a few people i mean yeah i i, I really love the first um ceo of that company uh, i mean the philosophy behind as well and that was quite unique yeah. i haven't heard but i will definitely like explore and google so uh, it's not like publicly uh, very famous but uh, you might want to check it out palantir and like i think alex park okay uh, one company you wish you would have worked with worked with in its startup phase palantir okay
I would like to express my deepest gratitude to the speaker for taking out their valuable time and sharing insights with us on the behalf of Girl Up Wings team. I would also like to thank Girl Up India head Ms. Aditi Arora and Girl Up campaign for devising the storytelling challenge which gave us this opportunity to interact with wonderful women in our community. We won't stop until we are equal everywhere. Signing off Girl Up Wings team.